Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. So we're still in the Olive Grove. We're going through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in case you're a guest. And we've been in Gethsemane now for, uh, for three days, although Jesus was only there a couple hours. Uh, well, I should say three weeks. And, uh, and a radical shift is about to occur in the scene, because we spent two weeks in a scene that was very private, very, uh, very prayerful, very in very sort of uh, intimate uh, setting that now is about to be pretty much shattered, invaded by a mob. And what you're going to see in this text is, in case you're wondering, how in the world are we going to apply this arrest text? (laughs) If I ever get arrested, what do I do? You know, kind of a thing. No, that's not what this is about. What you have here is a clash of kingdoms. You have a clash of kingdoms, two different realities, two different approaches to life. And the question becomes, well, which one am I in? Which kingdom am I in? Because you're in one. And which one is more powerful? That's an important question. Which one will order my world? Because each kingdom, as we'll see, has a completely different set of values. They are completely different. And the text I wanted you to see, first of all, uh, let's, sometimes we, we like to look at the whole text and sort of color certain things. And you can see, obviously, the arrest is in the forefront. You see it mentioned four times. And then you see uh, armed swords, clubs, swords, swords, clubs. So you see... Uh, very sort of uh, violent scene. Jesus is seized. And so when we think about the kingdom values, you can see the kingdom that's approaching Jesus and its values, and it is led by Judas. It's led by Judas, and it's dominated by weapons. It's just about weapons. It's all about power and money. Judas is motivated by money. The Sanhedrin, represented by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, motivated by money and power because that's what drives the kingdom that approaches Jesus, that approaches Jesus. The other kingdom is led by Jesus. And when you look at it, you just see weakness. So the one led by Judas has to do with weapons, and it's dominating, and it's powerful, seemingly. But the one led by Jesus is a different kind of power. It's a power that comes from weakness, and he's serving others. Jesus is completely dominated in his thoughts by others and not himself. One kingdom is driven by self. The other one by others. And that's why Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Because nowhere in this world can you find a kingdom that would raise as its sort of uh, dominant theme, we're weak. Okay, nowhere. You wouldn't find it here. And that's what tells you, by the way, that Jesus is so otherworldly. That his kingdom, whatever he was bringing, whatever he's, is not of this world. And so when you get to uh, this statement by Jesus in, uh, it's actually, I think, right here. He says, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me, but this has happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. What is Jesus saying here? Because this, this is what he says in this moment. And what he says in all of these moments is what's crit- critical. And so here's what essentially Jesus is saying. You're operating like you have completely misunderstood who I am, even though you've watched me day after day. In other words, they approach Jesus, and Judas and the Sanhedrin approach Jesus like he's like them. He's just a criminal. It's the same word used for Barabbas, a rebel, sort of a uh, rebellious outlaw. They think Jesus is desperate. They think he'll do anything. Like them, they think he'll do anything to save himself. And so they come with all this power and all this force. And by the way, you've got, you've got particular, probably, according to John, you probably have some Roman soldiers there. You could have upwards of 600, some say 1,000 show up in this posse, if you will. They got... Some of them are carrying clubs. That's probably the temple police. So you got Jewish security. You got Romans. You got who knows who else is in that mob. But they all think Jesus is a taker just like them. And they know how takers do. They'll do anything to get what they want. Anything to save themselves. And they don't care who they hurt. And they think Jesus is just like them. How would they think anything else? How would they think anything else? But Jesus is also saying something else here with this. He's putting it back on them in a really subtle way. He says, listen, day after day in the daylight, not only did you see me for who I really was and misunderstood that, but in the daylight you could have arrested me, but you chose to wait till night in the private because you're really the criminals. That's what Jesus is saying. You're treating me the way you are. And so he's calling them out. He's calling them out. You have this evil plot. You're pulling this scheme off at night. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't dare do it during the day. You break all of your own laws. You don't want anyone to see you. And you're doing what you're describing. And you know what's really interesting? is the juxtaposition of we've just come out of a prayer moment where Jesus was praying and now he's being arrested by these robbers. He's accusing them of being the outlaws. 
And remember how all of this started back in chapter 11 when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, entered into the temple, and he said, you have turned the house of prayer into a den of what? Robbers, thieves. You're the takers. You're the takers. And it's juxtaposed to prayer, just like it is here. Signifying you were on opposite ends of the spectrums. Or the spectrum. You're nowhere near where I am. I'm nowhere near where you are, or like you are, or operate like you are. You're the takers. But Jesus makes a point here to say this. Because this contrast is part of the plan, Jesus says. But this is also... (laughs) The reason you're doing what you are doing is so that the Scriptures will be fulfilled. Now here Jesus says something really important. I know that you feel very right and powerful and dominant. And whenever we take up our weapons, that's how we feel. When we're in protective mode, whatever we're protecting. Very powerful. And you feel like your dominance is going to win. That somehow you've got me. But Jesus is saying here, God is up to something. There is a divine conspiracy, if you will, happening underneath this surface. God is actually bringing his kingdom right here under your noses. His kingdom is coming in to actuality, into reality. And you're playing right into his hands. And I know that you have swords, and I know you can take me with your swords, but Jesus is about to say, you cannot defeat me with swords. You can't defeat me with swords. Slatter, a commentator, wrote this, how far such defenses are from the will of Jesus. This approach to Jesus. How far such defenses are from the will of Jesus. And then I like this line, how blind such human intrigues to the thoughts of God. How f- One of the things you see in here, and Jesus is making the point, and it's becoming just obvious here, is just how far apart they are. Just how far apart. And so that's the irony, really, of the kiss of death. Because Judas is going to approach Jesus Jesus with this kiss. And you say, what's the point of the kiss? A kiss was a fairly common greeting, especially for a student toward a rabbi. So this was not completely... uh, uh, you know, outlandish for Judas to do that. But what you have in Judas is basically, he has basically packaged his hate in an incredibly loving, intimate act. And what's, what's even more incredible is that right up to the last minute, if you don't know anything about the behind the scenes in Judas's heart to portray Jesus, if you don't know anything about it, you would, you would take that kiss to mean Judas was a friend. Right up to the last minute, you don't really know what Judas is doing. His act is an act of intimacy. And so there's no sign, even up to, to, to that moment, of any broken fellowship at all. And that's got to remind us of something very important that we emphasized for a couple of weeks. 
that you can be really close to Jesus, you can look really close to him, you can look affectionate, you can look intimate, and you can have really be as far away from him as possible. That is really important. That's especially important for the church to hear. If you think about this kiss, and you think about the kiss of death, of course, for me, the Godfather comes to mind. But this, that, even though uh, that, little, that kiss to Frito is uh, it's the kiss of death, still the kiss of death imagery, as I sort of researched it a little bit this week, goes all the way back to, to this moment here. Because it's, it's an act of betrayal. I mean, you're marked by death with this kiss. The dictionary describes it as uh, an action certain to cause something to fail. It's fatal. When you get this, it's fatal, whatever it is. And what's interesting in this text is you see these kingdoms clash, and you see this sort of the kiss of death. And the question becomes, which one of these kingdoms is going to die? Which one is really getting the kiss of death? Jesus gets this external kiss, of course, from Judas, but Jesus... And of course, he will die immediately, but ultimately, he doesn't die. But Judas's end, we all know his end. He's going to hang himself. With all that power and all that dominance, all that money he collected, and Mark doesn't even refer to it. Mark completely leaves him out of the picture, and that's, a, that's just a very graphic way of saying his end it's, it's actually telling you who really got the kiss of death. It wasn't Jesus. The kiss of death comes from abandoning Jesus. You want to know what the kiss of death is? The kiss of death is to not see who Jesus is. That's the real kiss of death. Because it's not his mission that's destroyed at all. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. Nobody's following Judas Jesus is the one who wins this, and it becomes evident in history. That's why Jesus makes the comment in Matthew in this same text. Because remember, the gospel writers tell the story. Each of them adds something unique. But I wanted you to see what Matthew writes, because this is very important. Notice what he says when, uh, after the sword is taken, because someone's going to pull a sword here. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus will say. Somebody on Jesus' side pulls the sword. We'll understand that in a minute. But listen to what he says. For all who take the sword will what? Die. The kiss of death comes from the kingdom of this world. If you're in that kingdom, it's the kiss of death. If it's all about protection of yourself, you will lose. Because it's all about demanding. It's all about imposing your will anger. It's the tactics you use when you're threatened. The reason they come to Jesus and get him is because they're threatened by him. He's threatening something in their world. And Jesus, listen, don't get out of the question. They say, uh, you treated me like an outlaw, Jesus says, and you know I'm not an outlaw, but don't think he isn't a threat. He's an absolute threat to any part of your heart that wants to keep and destroy and do anything for yourself. Any part of the, any selfishness on your part, Jesus is definitely a threat to. 
Your desire to be popular, he's a threat to. Your desire for financial security, he's a threat to. Your desire for authority, dominance, power, he's a threat to that. Because those values are not the values of the kingdom. Now, there are two things, sort of a long introduction to say there are two things in this text that happen, two events. Mark leaves both characters unnamed, but two things happen to help us understand a little bit about these two kingdoms coming together and where we are in these kingdoms. Two things happen. One of them is one of Jesus' own disciples pulls a sword. Somebody pulls a sword. Mark doesn't name him. So let's keep him unnamed for just a minute. Somebody in Jesus' camp pulls a sword and does exactly what the other people do. And in that we learn, because Jesus is going to tell us, it's very hard to live in the kingdom of God. It's very hard. I'm on his side, and I'm still finding it very difficult to live in the kingdom of God. It's very difficult to do what Jesus is doing. It's not instinctive to the people in Jesus' camp, and it's not instinctive for sure for the people who are approaching Jesus. It's very hard to do. So the swordsman is going to teach us but that's not how you operate in God's kingdom. And then there is the streaker at the end. And there we see in the streaker, we see what happens though? What happens though if I don't live for his kingdom and I live for mine? So you've got two unnamed characters that sort of become graphic illustrations for Mark, anyway. Now, let me just give you a quick rundown of the uh, kingdom that is approaching Jesus and their sort of their, uh, their team. You know, if you watch NFL at the very beginning of it, you know how they'll, they'll say, uh, let's look at the offense. Let's meet the offense. I'm, I'm, I'm Willis McGamey from all right. Uh, well, the kingdom of this world, here's what they have on their side. They have numbers. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them that have come to get Jesus. They've got numbers on their side. They're very powerful. They've got numbers. They have clearly uh, secret signs. Okay. Uh, when I do this, you do that. All right. They've got plots. They're scheming. They've, they, they operate out of fear and they operate out of hate. They have weapons, clubs. Of course, evil motives, and money is at the middle of it. It always seems to be. But on Jesus' side, listen to how Jesus describes his kingdom in Luke 6. This is what he says, blessed are you who are poor. How does Jesus' kingdom, who's lining up on Jesus' side? I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I got absolutely nothing. I'm poor. Or how about this guy? How about this guy on his? How'd you like to have this guy on your team? Uh, uh, I'm hungry now. I don't have any food. Blessed are those who weep. How about the people who are hated? You got people in your life who are hated because you know what kind of people they are. They're excluded. When they exclude you and insult you, that guy, the guy and the gal in your life that gets insulted and excluded, he's on the outs of where you are. 
And Jesus goes on to say, here's who I don't want on my team. And Luke, this is how Luke writes it, woe to the rich. You got money? You well satisfied with food now? Oh, you're well fed? You're out. Woe to those who laugh now. See, these are the folks that only care about the now. So with their money, they only care about the now. With their laughing, they only care about the now. And Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now. Woe to those, <laughs> people speak well of you. And that's all you care about? That people think highly of you? Think you're cool? That's not who's on my team. They operate from a different kingdom. They only worry about themselves. They only worry if they have money. They only worry if they're well-fed. They only worry if they're not insulted. They only worry about if they're in those people. That's a completely different kingdom. And that's what is clashing here. And you see just a complete reversal of values with Jesus, which he's actually living out for them right here in this moment. He's actually living it out. The kingdom of God is actually being demonstrated the power of his weakness is coming out right in the things that he's doing there. And it's, it's, if you're standing around him, even if you're on his side, you're going, that's impossible. There's no way you can win with that lineup. There's no way, Jesus, this is going to work. That's how we all feel in our lives. That's why we resort back to our old kingdom ways because sometimes it just feels like it's the only thing that's going to work. I got to get mad here for something to happen. I'm going to have to get a little money if we're going to fix this problem. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do that. That's how we operate and that's what happens in Jesus' camp. It seems unnatural. It seems impossible. And this someone standing next to Jesus is kind of watching him in this weakness and going, dude, you need somebody powerful on your team or you're going to lose. And what this unnamed disciple shows us is that those are our instincts. They're, they're for self-protection, self-security. That's our instinct. And see, everyone around Jesus is oblivious to it, not just Judas. All of the disciples, everyone. Jesus is the only one embodying the values of the kingdom in this moment. Let me tell you about what they're going to do to him and how it impacts how Jesus demonstrates his weakness and the power of his weakness. N.T. Wright has a book, uh, just came out, and... Uh, pre-ordered it. It finally came in. It happened to come in this week, which I'm really glad it did. It's, it's called The Day the Revolution Began, The Meaning of the Crucifixion. So I'm reading it along, along with studying Mark. He makes two comments about what the cross, where they're going to take Jesus, really says, because he does this, a, a lot of background on the crucifixion. And this is the two things he says about the cross. Number one, it's the, he says it was, it was used as the nastiest way of asserting their own absolute power by guaranteeing absolute degradation. So for the Romans, this was the way to demonstrate their power at the most gruesome. 
and guarantee how small you are. The second thing that they loved about the cross and the reason they used it was because it was a mockery of the victim. Especially if you had any social or political pretensions. If you thought you were high and mighty, if you thought you were somebody, oh, you want to be high and mighty? We'll put you high up on a cross. We'll even give you a title. But notice what Jesus has done with the cross. Here we are 2,000 years later. We know what the cross meant, what its power, the kingdom of this world used it to demonstrate its power. But notice this. This is another writer, but I was reading, uh, Who is this man? Another great book. Here's Here's what the writer says. The cross's very ubiquity causes us to forget what a strange symbol it is. It was the most humiliating means of execution available to Rome. Imagine choosing an electric chair or gallows or the guillotine as an icon for anything. Would you, use, would you wear a necklace with a guillotine around? Listen, you're not coming to my house for dinner. <laughs> what about an electric chair? You take something that has that powerful of a, uh, of a meaning behind the image and you have the ability to turn that into something else. Only Jesus could have done that. And he says, the cross was changed from the symbol of the human empire's power into a symbol of the suffering love of God. It was changed from an expression of ultimate threat into an expression of ultimate hope. Because the Romans, everyone was threatened by Jesus, of course, because he threatened their way, their values. It came, in a sense, to express the exact opposite of its original purpose. That's what the cross has come to do. That's what Jesus is doing. He literally turns their power into his power through weakness. Which one's more powerful? Which one got the kiss of death? That the power of embraced sacrifice is greater than the power of coercion. And Jesus proved it right in the cross. So he says, let me tell you about my team. Who's on my team? You know. The poor and the hungry and the insulted and the the left out. My kingdom will operate through them. These are the kind of people who get in. And these are the kind of people who will become the salt and light. And they will learn my way of the kingdom. I will take the weak because it's the weak that I work through. And so weakness in the Sermon on the Mount are things like forgiveness and reconciliation, swallowing pride, absorbing hurt. How about purity? We don't treat each other like sex objects. We just don't do that. Truth. We do what we say. We actually love our enemies. We actually pray for those who persecute us. We serve. We'll go an extra mile. We don't just serve. We really serve. Oh, you need something? We have it. You need the the coat I'm wearing? You have it. 
We're servers and givers in this kingdom. We're a completely different team with a different set of values and, and our plays are completely different. And Jesus is doing it right before them. He's going to be, he's going to turn the other cheek. He's going to forgive them while he's on a cross. He's going to carry his own burden and he's going to be stripped right in front of them. He does it all right in front of them. And so Jesus tells him, put the sword away. Put the sword away. It's not how we work. But then we come to this strange character, the streaker. And the text reads, first of all, closes like this. It's almost as if as soon as Jesus says, the scriptures, this is all going to happen, so the scriptures will be fulfilled. All the disciples, they left and they fled. They left him and they fled. And then you have this story. There's a young man who was following him, wearing only a linen cloth, and they tried to arrest him, but he ran off naked, leaving his linen cloth behind. There's a number of questions in this text. Do you have a number of questions in this text? Like, uh, who is this guy? First of all, Mark's the only one who mentions him, and I will tell you that there is no shortage of opinions about who this guy is. But hey, listen, sometimes, sometimes it's just better to just leave the guy unnamed. We don't know who he is, and there's no need to know, and I'm sure he doesn't want you to know. Because <laughs> God knows how many, how many scars he has on his naked behind running through that olive grove. I've been in that thing. You wouldn't want to run through it naked. So this young man is following him, and notice what's key after the verse you just read. And it's, it becomes a graphic picture of the disciples who once were following but now has run off. It sums up the disciples and the entire gospel. They once were following him but now they have run off. So we don't know his name and it's not important to know his name. He was a follower and now he's a fleer and it's a graphic picture. It's almost a comic caricature of a disciple. It's the same principle we've been talking about with Judas. Started out following him, but then just sort of abandoned him. And it's a picture, it's a total picture of cowardice. That's what it is. Except that there's one other element involved in this. Twice, and you don't see it in this, you don't see it in the translation, but twice you see the word naked. Okay, so he's naked here, but this translation is also naked. So two times in just this little short thing. And so what's added to this element, and it's important for our sakes here, is that he's naked, which is a, which is a picture of shame. It's a picture of shame because he's exposed. That's what nakedness means all through the Scriptures. Now, one commentator by the name of Garland said this, he was stripped of his last shred of resolve and exposed for what he was. And this is a picture of the disciples, stripped and exposed for what they really were. And here's the beautiful irony of this thing. Once 
Remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark? They left everything and followed him. Now they left everything to flee. They left it all behind. Do you remember that? They left everything. It's sort of a reversal of the call of discipleship. You might recall, and a very important story in the book of Mark was blind Bartimaeus. Remember blind Bartimaeus? In fact, uh, remember what happened? He's sitting on the side of the road. He's begging. Jesus is walking by. He kind of hears that Jesus is around, and he, he gets that attention. Jesus calls out. Remember, Jesus calls for him, and you remember what he does? And this is really important. Mark does this all the way through. I don't know what it is about Mark, but you'll see. Uh, Mark says, he threw off his coat, and he got up, and he followed. And here's the very opposite happening. I'm throwing it off to leave him versus throwing it off to follow him. Now, it's interesting, and, and I will give you a little homework assignment that you'll absolutely love. Go read now chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 on your own. I don't have time to get to it today. When we get there, we'll do it in light of the text, about, in, in light of this naked guy. Because something that, uh, that Mark does a lot is Mark is very concerned in his book, you might not have noticed it all the way through, about who's wearing what and why. He's a fashion guy. He'd be a metrosexual if he lived in this world. Uh, he lived in our day. He's one of those fashion guys. He's worried about what, what you're wearing says something about you, why you're wearing it, and whether or not you're wearing it. And so here's this guy who gets his coat pulled off. And this is why this is important, because this story, because Mark's going to have Jesus stripped twice in chapter 15. He's going to strip him once of his original clothes, put on that purple mockery of a robe, and then they will take that robe off and put his own clothes back on him. He'll be stripped twice. And doesn't the naked guy, isn't he reminiscent of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve and running and naked and hiding and fleeing? He's the same picture. And so here what is happening and what Mark is setting up, and he's setting it up for chapter 15 and 16, although I can't get to 16 today. In chapter 15, he's setting it up for this because Jesus will eventually be stripped and he will bear the shame that every one of us have. Jesus will bear our shame. And so while he represents a complete reversal in the disciples, they've left everything to follow him, and now they've left everything to flee from him. That's a reversal. But then there's going to come another reverse. If you're a wrestler, you know what a double reverse is. Somebody gets you, you got somebody, they figure out how to get around, but then you figure out how to get them again. And so the double reverse is Jesus saying, even though you have reversed and now taken on the shame of not being a follower, of a fleer, of being a fleer, here's what you can be assured of. What I'm doing here in this garden and what I will do on the cross for you is I will be stripped for you. I will take your shame of anything you've done. That's the cross. That's the power of the cross. And so you say, well, what do we take from that? What do we take from the streaker? We know from the swordsman how difficult this is 
to live in Jesus' kingdom. But if you're going to be on his team, you better put the sword away. You'll die by it. It's not a kingdom that can survive. That's the real kiss of death. The streaker tells us the kiss of death comes. Because here's why. He's hightailing it naked out of here to save his own life. It's a picture of saving your own skin. And what does Jesus say is the sure way to die? Save your own life, and you what? And you lose it. See, the real kiss of death is not living on Jesus' team in weakness and not having what this world wants. The real kiss of death is being on the opposite side. The real kiss of death is not being in Jesus' kingdom. And the only hope that you and I have of, of putting that sword away that you're so used to, wielding that power, anything to keep what I want and need and get what I want and need, instead of being a person who's, who's not always in the posture of getting what they want. The only hope you have is that Jesus has bore your shame. And you know what? You can take off running free from all of that desire and energy and self-centeredness to make your own life work. He's just taken off naked to make his own life work. And Jesus is saying, if you just let me, if you put your trust in me, if you come into my kingdom, what will help you keep the sword away and what will help you run free of all of that is knowing that I bore your shame. And even today, it's obvious that Jesus has won this war. Even today, even though it's not ultimate, even in our lives, we can see it. There's still much more to come to prove it to the world. So let me ask you this, and we'll close with this. You got anything in your life right now that needs to be left behind for the kingdom? Anything in your life that needs to be left behind? In other words, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but maybe you got a grudge. You just, you, you need to... You, you need to, like blind Bartimaeus, you need to throw it off and run away. How much lighter you would be if you got rid of that grudge? Because that's, that, that, that's not one of Jesus' plays. You got a bunch of stuff you've been amassing? Riches? Maybe you've been impressed by how much you have. Maybe today some of that needs to come off of you. It needs to go somewhere what could be useful for the kingdom of God. You remember what Paul said in, in Hebrews 12, lay aside anything that keeps you from running the race. It's almost Paul saying strip down to the least minimal so that you can be free to move about in the kingdom of God. I don't think this is the best way to say it. I don't think anybody ought to tweet it, but streaking for God. <laughs> streaking for him instead of against him. Father, we just absolutely thank you so much for what you've done and what you've shown us because we couldn't have learned it or seen it anywhere else. Only from you could come shameful people that you would use, that you would heal their shame on your cross 
And anyone who trusts in it, anyone who says, Father, I surrender myself to you in the cross, comes into your kingdom and all that shame and all those things we used to do and those clubs and swords we used to make life work become useless. Because of what you've done for us, we have the opportunity to be free of them. What an incredible freedom because right now some of us are just enslaved. And I pray you'll help one of us in this room, some of us in this room, discard something, unrobe something in our lives that's hindering us from running the race you've called us to. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.